Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Ear Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetearstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. My guest today is Hannah Brannan of Gather Flora here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hannah is passionate about flowers and created the Gather Flora web platform to connect local florists with regional growers, providing clear visibility into the seasonality, origins, and cultivations of each bloom. Her appreciation of the work done by farmers and florists, her love of their products, and her dedication to supporting the slow flower movement is evident in everything Gather Flora does. I can't wait to see how it grows. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you to describe yourself and your work at Gather and sort of in brief, what is the problem that Gather Flora is solving? Yeah, yeah. So I probably describe myself first these days. It's somebody who's just really obsessive about flowers. (laughs) And I came into this kind of in a roundabout way. My most recent background has actually been in software engineering. So that's not the only past career I've had, though. When I was thinking about leaving my latest job in as a software engineering for for a tech company called A16Z's United Masters, I really was looking to marry together everything that I had ever possibly been interested in. (laughs) And I used to work in specialty coffee, and I loved the way that specialty coffee really focuses on thinking about specialty product, not only on how it brings us enjoyment, but unpacks each layer of how does this affect the globe? How does the packaging affect the globe? How does the shipping affect the globe? How does the farming affect the globe? And how does each and every individual all along that source chain get paid? How do we make this a thriving opportunity for everybody who exists in this line? And as a barista in DC at the time, it's so inspiring to get to be involved in something like that. And we see that happening in coffee and chocolate and tea and wine and food. And I've loved flowers all these years, but flowers still are so far from that way. And it's a mystery. (laughs) So when I was thinking about leaving this tech job and getting more involved in flowers, I was looking to find a path that could maybe marry together all the things that I was interested in. And I was hoping, but not married to the idea that maybe there's a place to make flowers into something like specialty coffee where we can cohere an industry-wide approach to making flowers something that's thriving and equitable and sustainable at each step along the source chain. So (laughs) that was a big idea, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then with Gather Flora, one thing that I hated about what I perceived tech to be is I think a lot of us have the stereotype of a lot of companies just coming in like, I have this solution, let me overlay it and throw it at you. And I don't like that pattern of technology. So kind of took that big idea, put it aside, (laughs) and then just said, okay, let me take a few flower internships. Let me take a few flower jobs. Let me like volunteer for some people and see, see what their problems are. 
So I took an internship at the Flower and the Bee, which is no longer a shop there, but it's been bought out and it's become Wildflower and Friend by Sarah Reyes. And I interned for Brian. I volunteered for Sarah. I volunteered for a few farms that Sarah introduced me to up in the North Bay Flower Collective. I um, freelanced as a florist. Somehow they let me do that for a few weddings. And all along the way, I was just asking questions, you know, trying to keep it simple and, and unpack it all the way of like, well, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How is it working? How is it not working for you? And in this whole realm of these small specialty flower businesses, the florists and the farms and the and these middlemen, maybe they're markets, maybe they're distributors, maybe they're like Sarah, who's, who, well, now has it more, I think, integrated with her wildflower and fern business, but at the time was kind of just like doing it out of the good and vision of her heart. Yeah, they, they're so special. And it's so clear that there's this connective tissue of joy between all of them. And that joy gets all the way put to the, the final person who ends up with that bouquet in their home. But they're all overworked like crazy. None of them quite feel like they have enough uh, solid margins to feel happy as a thriving business. And as a software engineer, you look at those things and you're like, hmm, I see a lot of like rote routine work that's happening over and over and over and over again that I think we could just, if we had a computer do those parts, then people could do the parts they love that inspires them, that they're in this for, for the kind of the artistry and the connection and the people piece. And so through all that... (laughs) I started building Gather Flora, which I think of as, you know, an online marketplace backed by handling all of these rote logistics that small flower businesses don't actually enjoy spending most of their time doing. And in building this and making this available to small, almost like grassrootsy businesses, I hope that collectively we're building something that can transform the global flower industry into that thriving, equitable, sustainable sector for every step of the value chain. Boy, that was a lot of words. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's so great. You can really see your enthusiasm and your passions. And one thing that I'm aware of, lots of growers and florists experience when they don't have a gather florist, they're constantly trying to communicate back and forth on availability and things. You have to ask what's available if you want to seek that local source and that it can be difficult to maintain that when you're doing all the other things. So I just think what you're what you're doing makes that small scale growing so much more achievable because you're essentially you've created sort of an assistant to do right. all of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of aims to do that piece that you know I found there are some people who have that job, but often they don't want that job. Exactly. <laughs> and I feel conscious about right impacting like automating somebody's job away but it does seem like the piece of the job that people don't really like to have to begin with so it felt like a good fit and it's it's definitely that back and forth communication that keeps happening and the ability to stay constant but then also I think something I hadn't really thought about before getting into this is the record keeping right so it's in the moment but then if you are doing that right you have probably three to five days where you're constantly on call and communicating that you wouldn't have to, but then each quarter or whenever you file your taxes, there's also like, Oh, wow. Right. You go through your texts. Yeah. Where are all those records? Can right. I put them together? Right. How is flower text again? <laughs> what was the destination of that delivery? What was the source of that flower? Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we're, we're automating on a, on a daily and weekly basis, but also in that big record keeping way to keep people's numbers accountable and easy. 
Yeah, yeah, no, and it seems like you're freeing up time. Texting about availability probably wasn't what drew them to the the world of flowers. Yeah, yeah, we've seen texts, definitely like PDF emails, Google Sheets, Post-it notes. One of my friends puts her list on a piece of tape on her leg, (laughs) written upside down. That's good. It's nice. (laughs) And so where's Gather Floral located? It's on the interweb, so it's everywhere. But (laughs) where's your brick and mortar? Yeah, so it is on the interweb. And so this actually where you're looking at me, I'm in my home in Vallejo, and that's where the platform is predominantly run out of. But we have three locations currently where our network are cohering these pickups. So the first one that I think most people think of with us is that what I think of as our almost flagship location that we run. And that is in San Francisco downtown in the San Francisco flower market. And it's this big crazy complex of I think there's about 50 vendors there and it actually used to be a local growers complex and local growers had come together to form the San Francisco flower market but over the years it's increasingly become an importer marketplace for a variety of reasons and so now we are one of very very few local only stalls in that space. There's also Two other spots that we don't run. I actually even haven't been to one of them. (laughs) So in Santa Cruz, there is a, well, you know, a a hub where florists can order run by Kelly from Do Right Farms. So she has a pickup location in downtown Santa Cruz, and she also does delivery circuit one day a week down there. And the last location is up in Sonoma off, well, Petaluma Hill Road is, is where it is. And Susan Kegley from Bees and Blooms has kindly allowed us to rent a cooler space there. And there's it's run by the farm collective of the farms who provide the flowers and really spearheaded by Seth Gowan of Sidekick Flowers. So great. And who stops by this, these spaces during the day? Oh, yeah. Well, for any of them, it's it's almost completely florists. And there's a bunch of different kinds of florists. There's a lot of people who are doing floristry out of their home and via websites. There's people who have brick and mortar shops, people who are running big studios. In the San Francisco flower market, you also see casual retail customers, DIY brides. You might see people coming in representing grocery stores, a lot of people doing architect or photo shoots. <laughs> and so there, I think it's pretty much anybody in both Kelly's space in Santa Cruz and the Seth and Farms space up in Sonoma County. Those are not the same as our San Francisco space where we have also stuff available on the floor, but it's you pre-order or you come and pick up your pre-order. So it's People who are connected to their network mostly are finding them through our our website and almost in every case those are florists. San Francisco is our attempt to learn what all can this do. I before in 2020 um, was running just the web platform here and was partnered with Sonoma Flower Mart which unfortunately closed during the pandemic and they had run the web platform and we kind of built it to really tailor to how they were doing business. And we got invited through this wonderful florist who's always thinking about the community. Her name is Charlotte Flock. Charlotte Flock Designs is a great studio in San Francisco. She connected us to the market manager, Jeannie Bose, who is constantly thinking about, well, what can flowers look like 
tomorrow for how this market is going to grow and evolve. And so Jamie and I always have a lot of fun chatting about, okay, like, you know, what's GatherFloor doing differently? What's it doing the same? In fact, this pre-order model that GatherFloor is pushing forward more and more, that's kind of the old way of doing things. <laughs> the farms back, you know, in the early 1900s and probably all the way up to right the 60s, 70s really were as much as possible having florists pre-order what they wanted and they would only cut those things and bring those things and what's nice about that model is it's very efficient <laughs> the farms aren't transporting things that they're not selling those things can stay and recycle and compost back in the land and not just go into some sort of landfill or just pile in the city where it's kind of doing nothing but also just you know not wasting effort on the things that aren't being sold and for the end consumer they get the freshest product possible. It's just cut from the field because they ordered it. And that's incredible. (laughs) So yeah, it's funny how technology is enabling us to make that efficient again. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So again, I buy into this and I think it again makes this small flower growing more achievable. What has been the response that you've received? Oh man, it's very different now that we have the San Francisco flower market than (laughs) you can imagine the first days when I was first taking this internship and I was kind of reaching out to farms and it's like, I'm a software engineer and I'd like to talk to you about your problems. (laughs) Farms get barraged with a bunch of software potential solutions and things that, you know, pay money for our whatever and we will maybe help you (laughs) out. I think they have that constantly in their inbox and you know, a lot of farms aren't really getting into farming for being behind a computer or thinking about technical solutions. I think that's part of why we see post-it notes still being a way that people and like texting back and forth photos of the flowers still being a way that people source predominantly. So in the beginning stages, there was a lot of skepticism and I would do things like volunteer for a week before I got to have the conversation with the farm (laughs) or weed people's fields or drain people's fields. And I was just, you know, rolling up at my sleeve and yeah, I can't explain why, but I've had a lot of enthusiasm for the potential of this idea from the beginning. So I just wanted to be able to discuss and explore. And it's like, fine, if I got a weed a row, <laughs> I will weed this row. And yeah, so in the beginning, I think there was just a lot of skepticism. And there were a few farms like Serenity Flower Farms was really great about being on there really fast and helping me test the system. And Heidi from Strong Arm Farm um, also was just right on there giving her feedback from the beginning. And those little like flashes of enthusiasm kept me going throughout. Once we had the San Francisco flower market, I think people just were able to visualize exactly what I'm talking about. So for me, the thing that's special about the way that we're building this web platform is, you know, we are very mindful of its impact on the farmer first. (laughs) And it takes incredible products being available on this platform for florists to really have an interesting offering. So in some way, you kind of have to start with the the incredible product being on there. So it has to be really easy for a farm to use, really convenient for a farm to use, not take up too much of their time. But realistically, you know, the easy, convenient, great, but are you selling something? And once we really got the numbers climbing week over week over week in the San Francisco flower market, I think that local flower farms realized, oh, you were saying that traditional florists would want this if it was easy for them. And now I see they really do. We care a lot about maintaining money going back to the farms. 
and taking a slim of a margin as we can to sustain a thriving business ourselves. So, right, being able to give farms their value, but also pass on value to the consumer so it's really accessible. And the florist, that does mean that still, though, our prices are, are higher than a lot of traditional flowers. And so a lot of the farms were skeptical that that was achievable. And we found that it's just never been a problem. And we certainly are mindful of trying not to gouge anybody on price or to be respectful of this relationship, but maintain the value of the service that we're providing and the value of not only the service, but the artistry that the farms are providing. Mm-hmm. Man, just the flowers. What's so special to me about the San Francisco flower market is you've got people who've been there for 20, 30 years. They've been in there every day, probably at least every week and still walking by our stall stops them in their tracks. You know, there's something, there's just, sometimes we have some similarities of products. I mean, often, but it's the way that they're grown. It's the movement. It's the space. It's the fact that you can, you can see they're not mass produced Mm -hmm. in a mass farm factory setting. They've, They really have a touch of nature to them. And there's just this breath that I think that you can see in our space, but also creeping in with all of the coral amaranth, which maybe is available in another stall. You might see a caper flower, which is like a sea creature Mm -hmm. (laughs) that nobody has ever seen before, basically. And so, yeah, there's just, it's very visually transparent that there's something different happening with what our growers are providing. Yeah. Clearly, you have a love of flowers. Can you tell me a little bit about where that developed in your in your life and your history? So my entire maternal family, they all have incredible gardens. But I think for all of us, even, it traces to my grandmother, my mother's mother. And she is just, she's a garden lady. <laughs> and she had... So I guess when I, I moved around about every every two years once I was 11, and I moved to all these different towns. And one time I was living very far away from San Marcos, Texas, where she was, and I had a math tutor who had gone to college in San Marcos, Texas. And I had mentioned I had family there, and my grandmother had a really beautiful garden. And he's like, oh, I love walking past that garden every day. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, she just she it was a magical space that she created and obviously that that comes with a daily practice. And so I remember sitting on the porch with her and just looking at the garden at 5 a.m. in the morning and we'd watch the deer come and, and eat the things that she'd grown. <laughs> and, you know, also just going out and putting like baiting for slugs with beer <laughs> or tending the garden and playing in the garden and making mud pies and running barefoot. But through the space and each of her children have all created incredible gardens, including my mother. And even though we moved every two years, my mom always would create these super incredible spaces. And so for me, I think it's always been a place of family and and magic. And I'm sure that's part of where my enthusiasm for flowers comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And then how in your adult life did you find a way back to it? Yeah, this is so tight. It's probably Florette flower that really pulled me like back into the space. I've always had some gardens and annies, annuals and perennials, actually, like the second that I found out about that after moving to California, I spent too much money there forever more. But once I saw, you know, Florette's seed program or talking about how you can productively plant a small space and looking at some of these different kinds of heirloom varieties that she'd never seen, I started 
planting out my entire backyard with that. So I had a backyard because then I was a fancy software engineer <laughs> in Oakland and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a huge backyard or anything, not that fancy of a software engineer, but, but still I had some outdoor space that I could play with. And I noticed that I was managing my stress of software engineering and my boundaries of not being at work every day in the morning and the evening being in the garden and the more and more I was doing that I was realizing oh this should be what the center of my life mm-hmm. is yeah no I mean it Florida has such a it's such a wonderful story yeah I think it really invites people in which I think is wonderful right no they're an incredible business and and the way that they are moving I just feel like I have the same story as everybody else which actually yeah. is kind of nice <laughs> But they are pushing this local specialty flowers thing out into everybody's conscientiousness throughout the country in a huge, important way. So, you know, in a way that I think reaches more like retail consumers than even Deborah Printing's Slow Flowers Movement, which infuse all of it. And I think it's more definitely has more industry right. awareness about what's going on there. No, but the ASCFG and Flora and Slow Flowers are really cultivated this environment where yeah, the floor is kind of able to waltz along the exact right time. <laughs> and what pulled you into engineering? So before engineering, I was in Arabic translation. I'm also a language geek. I love learning any language you can throw my way. I'm still scared of tonal languages like Chinese. <laughs> that seems very hard. But I love learning languages and it's something that feels fish and water for me. When I followed my husband to the Bay Area, I was doing Arabic translation work and particularly in nonprofits or working in Arabic within a mission-driven context that felt good for me to be working in. And I found it very difficult to find those positions in the Bay Area and be able to be financially independent. (laughs) And so... Then I began thinking about how I might be able to use language skills in a way that would allow me to survive in the Bay Area financially independently. And man, software seemed like the low-hanging fruit there. So I just started dabbling and exploring. And I think it was Code.org was the first way that I was learning with a group of... I used to teach second grade after school programs through the East Bay Asian Local Development Corporation and myself and some of the teachers, we just thought, all right, like, let's just sit down and come into work early and try try to teach ourselves how to code. And I really liked it. I do think it, it ticked those grammatical yeah. language niches for me. And I got myself into this engineering boot camp that was probably still is. It's been bought and sold a few times, was known as the best one. And it's called Hack Reactor. And they train you in three months to become a software engineer. And they just toss you into the job search and send you off. <laughs> but yeah, we do, I dove into coding from there. And I really do. I do. It feels like having a mm-hmm. magic wand. <laughs> it is this ability to think of something that you'd like and then make it happen in the world. And in particular, before attending Hack Reactor, I taught myself enough code to get into Hack Reactor. But there was this space before the program was starting that was just empty. And again, I'd been doing Arabic translation. This was, I think, in 2016-15. The Syrian refugee crisis was going on, and we did not have enough translators over there. So I actually tried to use that gap to go do some Arabic translation over in the Greek islands. And I did that for a while, but very quickly there was this crisis where they had had a software engineer quit. (laughs) 
and they didn't know how to communicate what they needed to software engineers to get the program written effectively. And they were just kind of desperately casting around, does anybody know how to do this kind of stuff? And I was like, I know just enough, maybe. <laughs> and so I went over to do translation, but then I ended up writing code. That was my first code that I built and shipped. And for me, the thing that was most special about this thing, even this magic wand thing is, okay, so I, as a translator, can have impact, right, being the one of the handful of people who speak both English and Arabic on one of these islands when there's thousands of refugees here that need translation for. But more than that, I can analyze the effectiveness of a cash distribution program <laughs> um, and make sure that people are getting the resources that they need by writing this code. <laughs> and that that has impacts for this country, but also hopefully for the Mercy Corps products throughout the years and pushing forward throughout the years. And so for me, that's what's the most exciting about software engineering is this ability to have very high leverage mm -hmm. on a very lofty yeah. goal. Absolutely. Well, I think that brings me to another question for you about Gather Flora is, is the software transferable? I know you're trying it out in a couple of different places. And then how could you maybe make it more available or what are you thinking there? Yeah. So it's certainly the vision to be able to have global impact and also Process-wise, we'd love to do it in a way that really maintains focus mm -hmm. on the community. So we've been conscious about not trying to expand too fast, too quickly, because each community actually has its own distinct needs. And if we just let it go, then I fear that we might end up becoming that same software that yeah. puts its problem onto the or its solution onto the community that I, I kind of was trying to step away from. So in this next season, or actually starting now in the in the down season here, we're going to try in a bit of a higher touch way to go out to a few different communities and see how the platform works and doesn't work with them. And so we've brought on a, a small team, but a very exciting team of about three people to be hub liaisons and, and farm liaisons to try to see, does this work for a small farm in Nevada City by itself? Does this work for a farmer's market in Mendocino? And and I don't know if these locations are, are ones where it's going to cohere. We're going to try to continue to offer solutions rather than force people to cohere into markets. And so we will have a lot of conversations with a lot of communities that have reached out to us with interest throughout the season. And if we learn that what we're doing is actually repeatable and is actually, you know, has some sort of repeated success, not only for us to be a thriving business, but for these people to feel like they can use Gather Flora in a very positive way, then then the sky's the yeah. limit, really. <laughs> so in my initial vision for this, I think it's organized somewhere between what Etsy looks like and what Airbnb looks like. So you can start at your specific location and search for your specific need and see all of the availability in your area, be able to access it there. So in my ideal world, whether you're in Mexico City or Austin, Texas or New York, you'd be able to find some Gather Flora networks to be able to source from. That's so great. As you're thinking about that expansion, do you already know sort of some of the some of the expected differences? Like I'm thinking of weather and season or what what are you sort of anticipating? Yeah, there's definitely, I think weather and season influence a lot of how people are 
growing, whether it's indoor or outdoor or kind of approach growing methods or different kinds of chemicals that are deemed acceptable or not acceptable in those communities. And so part of what we want to do is is learn what kinds of standards do we have and want to enforce with this community and what do we want to let be guided by the community themselves. But yeah, I think there's going to be interesting challenges that we're going to have to think through of how connected these different kinds of nodes would want to be. So does LA want to be connected to Santa Barbara, connected to Monterey, and how would flowers go back and forth between those in a sustainable way? And you could look at that in a in a zoomed out model, but the more shipping that happens in flowers, the higher the carbon footprint. And so what we're also very excited about is how can we simplify the most sustainable choice? So if we're able to force amaryllis bulbs during winter time in places with greenhouses, can that provide a need met for the people who are looking to have flowers in that location? Force branches, different kinds of drying strategies, and sharing those strategies of off-season availability feels like a really wonderful way that we can help people en- enrich what they're able to offer right there in their own location. Absolutely. I also think that your focus on sustainable local is, it seems like it's a value added for consumers. Are you seeing the market sort of coming to meet you? Who's sort of driving it? Yeah. I wonder if it's too reductionistic to say Deborah Prinzing has been driving it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I think it is florists, you know, and what, where they're, wherever they're getting their information from, Deborah or the slow food movement or wherever it's coming from, I do think right now it is the industry buyer that's driving it. I think so many end consumers, like like if I were buying from a florist or my cousin was buying from a, a florist, there's still so many people who are completely unaware that any flowers are imported ever. It blows their mind because it seems like this fresh thing. Of course, it's from nearby. Right, right. <laughs> and that's an interesting thing to unpack because, you know, when we look at industry-wide studies, one of the biggest complaints people have is the flower doesn't really last long. Okay, well, did you know that it's been cutting out of water for days? Yeah. <laughs> you got to your florist and there's more complexity to that issue than just what I just said there. But I do think that so many end consumers are still unaware, but every conversation that I do have with one, they're interested and at least tell me that it is definitely going to change their buying pattern. So I'll be interested to see the ways that we can help work with florists to really push consumer awareness forward Mm -hmm. on this issue. But right now it is florists who, to be honest, in the San Francisco flower market, the first reason that people are buying from us is because it's unique and interesting flowers. Mm-hmm. People have been, you know, they've they've seen everything else before and they're being offered something new and something exciting. And I think that exciting is speaking to their end consumers. It spoke to me. I didn't really like the idea of florists or cut flowers. They to me meant like those, you know, the normal flower refrigerators and the smell that they have. <laughs> you know, tight red roses, that's what a florist meant to me before moving to California. And then walking by and seeing, I wouldn't have known this at the time, but 
seeing leucospermum that probably came from Resendus brothers or seeing these little button mums that probably I the only grower I've seen that grows them is Joanna from Blume Farm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I know, okay, that's actually, those were all probably grown in California. But at the time, all I knew was, wow, I've never seen anything like it. How come I've never seen a cool flower before? Yeah. So I think even with people's focus on that, uniqueness it is actually pushing forward local because these flowers are optimized for beauty and experience maybe fragrance whereas the cut flower of the flower industry today is optimized for its basically ability to endure a 3,000 mile journey multiple temperature changes fumigation at the border and so you just have something that looks incredibly different and so it's this very passive structural push mm-hmm. <laughs> for a local flower in and of itself. But then we also have a bunch of incredible florists who are shouldering the responsibility of sustainability. And for them, a lot of time it looks local. It's supporting female-owned businesses, supporting small businesses like themselves. Pilar from Gorgeous and Green has the most wonderful mind where she's constantly thinking about, okay, well, you know what else is cool? Like maybe collecting rubber bands, maybe making sure that all of your cleaning products are in reusable bottles and are minimally harmful for the environment. And I think the florists themselves, so often we hear that they're thinking of these issues and in particular with the framing of participating in an industry that causes so much waste. So they're so used to planning for months and months and months, prepping for days, Finally, the flowers are up. There's a few hours and then they just get taken down. (laughs) In a lot of cases, they end up in trash or compost after that. And that bothers so many of the florists that we work with. So they're proactively looking for ways to mitigate that. And for them, conscientiously source flowers, sustainably source flowers, locally source flowers, that's part of the answer. To add one, one more piece to it, so many farms in California are thinking about drought and water. So a lot of times we'll get asked questions by florists which of these could be almost dry farmed? Which one takes less water? Studio Mondine asks a lot of detailed questions like that, which is really fun to see. They'll, they'll ask questions around, well, how are the farms affected by storms? Like, what can we do to support them in this? What kinds of products can be doubled up for productivity for that farm? So very, very thoughtful florists who are unpacking a lot of levels of the impact of their purchase. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also I think, the expectation, if you go to some place like San Francisco Flower Mart, they must all be local. That may not be immediately clear to someone who who is sort of seeking that out. Absolutely. I hope that we create a pragmatic solution for people to be able to source locally and to, to, to kind of push those questions of, we want to push labeling and push transparency and tell people who our growers are and where our growers are and just increasingly push on those things in our physical presence in the San Francisco Flower Mart, especially because you know, we hope to grow Gather Flora. We hope to be able to have these local networks, but we think it's so important that flowers in general moves towards the direction, even if there's still going to be imports to be able to say, this is Rainforest Alliance certified. This is Fair Trade certified. This is Flor Verde certified. Because in addition to having references to the sustainability impacts there, it certainly stands for a lot in terms of fair wages, fair mm-hmm. labor practices, the way that the communities producing those flowers are affected. So we'll try to push forward on those things too, as much as possible. (laughs) That's fantastic. And in your current life, do you have a growing space? Yeah, I can't help it. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) It's very dry right now. I've certainly, this has been the year where I have spent the least time in the garden. Unfortunately, I live in Vallejo. 
part of the reason I moved here was to be able to be at the nexus of where my current farms and current customers were back in 2019 when I moved here. But a huge reason was also the access to growing space and the decrease of powdery mildew that I would experience here and more sunshine. And it was glorious. All of my Oakland flowers that I had had from Annie's or whoever I sourced them from, I dug them up and I brought them here and they are so much happier in Vallejo. It's incredible. Yeah. So another really fun thing about being connected to farms is oftentimes if there's extra plugs that they can't plant, I get first pick those. So I have a lot of wonderful Annie's products. I try to, you know, do echiums and and buckwheats and some of those surprising cool California native things that you'll find. And then also some very interesting cut flowers that we're able to get from people. And of course, florette seeds, florette till death. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty lovely. Whoever planted out this garden before we moved here planted in some particularly California natives. So she's got the California bush in them in two different locations. That's super beautiful and nice to have. Two California lilacs are in here and a few different salvia plants that are are nice and happy and healthy. So it was really lovely to go in there. There is a phthalic turbine that we can't can't get rid of. It's it's nice color to have, but one of those beautiful invasives that's just always handy. And so you've had a very busy year How are you able to make time for the garden, if at all? Yeah, I wish that I did have more time to have my hands in the dirt this year. I think that, but being in the garden is just real relaxing to me. And so, so even walking from the street through the path to the front door and just being able to comb my eyes over, okay, how is the garden doing today has been interesting this year because there was so much heat and so much drought and I had so little time to be mindful of it. It's been a practice of, oh, this is what thrives. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, being able to give myself space, my window right here looks out onto the garden. And so I'm looking at the lime tree and there's a bell tree dahlia that's getting ready to bloom and somehow is still alive. It's nice to see, okay, like Mexican cloud forest plants and Bolivian mm-hmm. plants seem to somehow do okay here. Yeah. Yeah, and if I whenever I can to just get my hands in dirt, I also find that when I am overloaded with too many or too complex of technical ideas, it's so helpful for me to just just do something routine. So that's a great time for weeding or I think 2 days ago it's just shelling lunaria <laughs> just just uh, doing something over and over again. Absolutely. It's almost like a, it's just an unfriendly meditation. Mhm. Exactly. Yeah, and then I imagine you're your grandmother is still an influence in this garden. Are there any other influences that you take when you're planning out different spaces? Yeah, I think the farms influence me and the way that they think about plants is pretty inspiring. So Seth from Evermore has a really strong focus on this bifold thing of of thinking about what an imported plant means. So he's trying to recover some eucalyptus, well, maybe all eucalyptus varietal respect yeah, <laughs> and Australian native import respect. And there really are some, some truly incredible textures and foliages that they have here. And we have such a nice climate match. Yeah, But also he pushes forward a lot of California natives and things that are really interesting, like a silk tassel tree. Mm-hmm. Some of the farm practices that are common along among the farms that we source from no-till or just being very mindful about how you are 
affecting and disrupting the soil. And mm-hmm. so I'll try to pull from those practices as well and just experiment. I have such a smaller space than them. Maybe collectively it's a eighth of an acre. I'm not a quarter acre or something, yeah. something and then we have, I haven't measured through. But it's still really lovely to see what's different about the soil. And one of the things that I love is, oh, we're reviving an ecosystem. There's worms again. There's all these different new bees coming in into this space. And then Eleanor from the Bard Garden is like (laughs) avant-garde almost with the way that she plants. And she's one of our firms at the San Francisco Farm Market. She's a constant inspiration for, oh, okay, well, what an interesting thing to try. And she and Feral Flora probably have the, she, Feral Flora and Puck's Garden are the ones that have those plants that have never been seen before by folks in the market. So maybe next year, hopefully I'll get my hands on some of that white cloud larkspur that Puck's Garden has. I definitely want bush capers now from Eleanor's selection. And I think Uprising Seed has the white cloud. No way. Yes. Great. Actually, well, you'll have to remind me. I won't. won't. (laughs) African. Foxglove was a pretty fun one to encounter. Yeah. I've seen it. I think Florette had it this past year, but I've definitely seen the seeds available. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot of really cool ones. A lot of mallows have been showing up from some of the farms, but also are almost an emerging trend, it seems like, in the marketplace. So, right. you know, that'd be fun to do in the garden, as long as I know that I'm going to keep them alive. Right. <laughs> are there any flowers from the San Marcos garden that you want to grow or... Yeah, I don't have any here, but I was, so there's just two plants that I really would love to have in this space whenever I could. So the first one that really comes to mind is this Coreopsis or Tixie. It actually just, it's not from the San Marcos Garden. It's actually my, on my dad's side of the family. We've got some ranchers and they're over in Fredericksburg and just Mason County and tick seed or coreopsis it just kind of grows wild there and so as I started seeing it in these high-end floristry designs (laughs) it's just such a oh it's so nice it's just oh wow like I grew up with that like I'm used to seeing like cows (laughs) yeah (laughs) it growing amongst cactus and so thistle also feels like one of those things that I probably wouldn't like as much if I it wasn't just part of my experience of childhood running through hills and thistle being around me it's really nice to see that recur yeah but there's a begonia flower that is orange that my great grandmother on my father's side had and then my my mimi who we've been talking about before on my mom's side she actually got a cutting from my great grandmother before my great grandmother died and she's been keeping it on her porch ever since and it's big and it's happy and it's beautiful she even she moved houses recently but still has that on her porch she keeps trying to send me some and it hasn't made it through but someday one of those cuttings is gonna lift yeah <laughs> maybe you can do a road trip and take it back in like a yep. like a little cooler or something for it <laughs> yeah yeah for those growers that are in areas where there isn't a gather flora yet mm. what would you recommend that they do maybe as they're waiting for for you to arrive or yeah yeah yeah. hey i mean well they should definitely reach out to us because we would be interested to know where they are yeah if we can help them but yeah so i think so many of them have already started reaching out to florists in their area and it's so nice to just be able to have a routine purchase (laughs) so i think thinking collaboratively with that florist about well what if what that i grow 
would you buy throughout the year? What about in the spring? What about in the summer? What about in the fall? And trying to think about who's going to need this on a weekly basis. I have it on a weekly basis. And that's a good way to start because it could be, you know, one shop, you could probably produce a few bunches even from a, a smaller space. So that's a really great way to start. But even as as people start to think about partnering with one other farm or two other farms, you're really able to have more volume and selection that makes it easier for the florists. And what is hard without something like other flora, but, but still we found to be very important is to make sure that the communication and the consistency is there, that they, the florists really are able to rely on the product. And as soon as you would know, oh, it's not going to make it through. And I knew that you were going to want that to be able to get that information to them as fast as possible. Of course, if you had a web platform, that was <laughs> far easier. But it's it's a great way to start is to start thinking of kind of joining in those networks and how can the community be stronger together. In our area, especially during COVID, we've started seeing a lot of farms doing CSA programs. So like peony CSA, you don't necessarily have the exact whatever it is, but maybe a peony bouquet once a month or once a week to help build in that kind of regularity that you would get from a florist. So you're you're able to influence the consumer patterns that way. Yeah, we've seen those those be pretty effective tools to try to minimize the amount of labor that a farm is doing while still outputting it. Well, selling, selling a consistent amount of product. We find that the farms usually don't have problems growing it so much as connecting it to a market. Yeah, that makes sense. And then as we transition into fall, one of our, our wonderful and long seasons I find here in California, what is on offer and how is that changing or how, what are you seeing in the shifts week to week? This fall has been crazy, surprising because, right, I kind of mentioned that the drought has led to a lot of farms having fewer items sooner, but we've just had this rain. And for some farms, the rain has just meant ugh, devastating <laughs> impact on fields and nothing is the plants are damaged it's time to just call it quits and for other farms from porch farm for example we haven't had product for them i haven't really been tracking but for months as they've been reducing the amount of water that they're using to preserve their watershed and and make sure that the watershed and the fisheries around there are protected so we just haven't had flowers from them but the rain has brought in (laughs) enough volume of flowers for them to be doing at least one more delivery, maybe a few more throughout the season. And so it's been a whirlwind <laughs> for sure. Fall is definitely chrysanthemums time. Chrysanthemums and marigolds are pretty exciting. Celosias and amaranth and status are all in here too. And we're going to be transitioning into more dried products as well. So some really, really cool fatty poppy pods there at the moment that I'm pretty excited about. There's really beautiful oryx seeds. Lunaria has some really nice dried larkspur. Do-Right Farm has actually dried a whole bunch of really neat offerings throughout the seasons. And so there's everything from like crespi or billy balls to some fever fuse that are dried to the celosias that have been dried more recently. And man, they have this Calypterum and acrolinium that are really cool. Have you seen those before? Yeah. <laughs> they're so cool. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Um, yeah. Of course, everybody's been into xeranthemum this year. So that'll be yes. going through towards the end of fall, but also have, have be almost just as beautiful, more beautiful, maybe depending on how pale you like your colors, right? You'll just get a little, little right. muting of the pink. 
or a little bronzing of the white, but that has its own beauty to offer too. Mm -hmm. So we'll see more dried stuff. And then we're kind of actually learning as we go for the rest. We know that the San Francisco flower market traditionally offers greens throughout the winter. And we will try to think of ways that we can offer greens that provide some contrast. This fall season, I think it's going to be very different where we're kind of scrambling like, okay, who's got an interesting gourd? (laughs) Who's got rose hips? Whereas we all already know, oh, it'd be really great if we had bittersweet. But of course, it's going to take some planting, planning, growth time before we get that in. And more Eliagnus would be really wonderful and different varietals of that feel a little more Christmassy to florists could be mm-hmm. very helpful. As much abelia as we could possibly carry would probably be helpful. We've already got some flowering quince in the ground as of last right. year through one of our farms. But again, like it'll be a year or two before we're really ready to harvest those. Absolutely. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, this is also so wonderful. And I think you're facilitating more, more people able to join in and really be successful in it, which is so wonderful. Hoping to just do our part in this big, big movement. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Jill. I really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for listening. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com. 